Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. You're going to see me sit down here because this thing got started a bit early. Here we go. All right. There we are. Hi, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Uh, My name is Luke Thomas. It is, uh, let's see, it is the 30th of October 2021, and it is time for my, I'll actually say the Morning Combat UFC 267 post-fight show. I hope you are doing well. I know I am. Let's see. Um, bit right. That's all right. That's fine. Um, I think everything is going well with the with the connection. Yesterday on my personal channel, there were still some issues, but okay, here we are. Um, all right. So if you don't want spoilers for UFC 267, which is now in the book, now is the time to skedaddle and get out of here. Uh, we are just, we are going to get to the results here here in just a moment. Um, of course, if you want them and you want more of MK, thumbs up on the video. Please hit subscribe here on this Morning Combat channel. We are trying to drive uh, as many subs as we can. We appreciate your patronage just the same. And uh, any other news and notes? No, the fights are in. The results are in. Let's get to the show as I adjust my thing right now. All right, there we are. I'm going to take subscribe off, but I do want you to subscribe. Thank you so much. Of course, if you're new to Morning Combat, it's normally myself and Brian Campbell. We do it three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 11 a.m. in the East. But this is our po- this is the post-fight show. I- I'm hosting it today. Brian will be here for the Monday show, obviously. But we'll get to a live reaction here uh, on today's program. Okay. Well, uh, I'm assuming you want spoilers at this point. Uh, I'm assuming that that is okay with you. And with that, let's get this party started. So... Here we are, UFC 267. Let me pull my notes up here if we can. Oh, did someone text me? What's up? Okay, I sound good. Okay. Someone says, my producer. Uh, let me pull this up. Here we go. Okay. UFC 267. This took place at the Etihad Arena in Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates. And uh, let's start with your main event, Glover Teixeira. Ready for this one. How about this? Defeats Jan Blahovich via rear naked choke submission at 3.02 of the second round. Uh, he is your new champion. Glover Teixeira is now at 42 years of age. I, th- I initially wrote but then corrected that he was the oldest champion in UFC history. I think that would be Randy Couture if memory serves. I don't, I'm not sure who else it would be. But okay, so now Glover Teixeira becomes your second oldest champion ever and, um, you know, I was there in Baltimore when he fought John Jones and really didn't have a prayer that night. Remember, that's when he got his arm wrenched going this way and stuff. 
Um, and he was just a bit of a shutout. And I thought, well, that was his title chance, and now it's gone, and that's a pity. But I wrote this, and I really, really mean this. Glover Teixeira is what it means. Like He exemplifies what it means to give your life to, or commit your life, I should say, to the martial arts, right? This is what it means. Um, obviously, he's a prize fighter, and that takes things in certain directions. But what I mean is, here is a guy who uh, certainly has become a jiu-jitsu black belt, but I don't just mean like what titles did he hold in uh, martial arts. What I mean to say is, somebody who has routinely um, lived the values of sort of the martial way of discipline and honor and respect and introspection and working on one's mistakes and you know all of the things there he's been that guy that's the guy that he is and um it has paid off finally at the very last stage of his career this is not the only time we've seen people achieve great things perhaps the greatest things they've done in mma in their very last sort of twilight moment of their career. Michael Bisping would be another one. I'm sure you can name several others. Um, it, it does sort of go to show that something to be said for longevity in MMA, the ones who can do it and the benefits that are conferred upon him are the, the, those those types of people. But in the case of Glover Teixeira, he doesn't get here without, without that. He's very talented as a fighter. And as a fighter, he got pretty far up until today, right? Let's sort of exclude today's results for just a second. Even with that, he had had a distinguished fighting career, but what put him over the hump is this dogged determination deep into his career about believing in oneself, having self-confidence, but also reflecting, before my dog comes in here, reflecting on uh, the challenges of the journey, Always trying to be a better version of yourself today than you were yesterday. Being held accountable. Working on all the small problems that you can. Just really being committed to a craft, to a way of life, and to an end goal. And all of that merged here tonight with Glover Teixeira. So how did he end up doing it? I want to pull up the numbers here in just a minute, and I will. Let me pull that up as a matter of fact. So let's see. Because I got to tell you, I was a little bit surprised by some of what had happened. If you guys had watched my main event breakdown yesterday before I had an epic stream collapse, what you had heard me say was, if you look at the historical record of takedowns that Glover has, he certainly was never bad at them. That was not a thing, but that it wasn't this like overwhelming force. There were times he could get it, but it was usually against opponents who were um, a little bit undisciplined in how they managed space or certain interactions where they should have been fighting the hands and takedown attempts, and instead they were like going for something else, right? When you're not really dialed in with all of the details, he takes advantage of those guys. But for the ones who have really good takedown defense, um, it was a lot harder for him to do a whole lot too. Recall he had that big lift on Gustafson. That was the one, like, Gustafson's lift with DC got remembered more but the initial big high crotch lift came from Glover and then flipping him over the whole nine yards so um he's always had good takedowns but 40 percent accuracy that accuracy that means you know three out of every five don't go anywhere and um you know obviously even if you get the takedown as a sort of a theoretical matter that doesn't mean they're going to stay down they did in this case the only point was we knew if it got to the ground there was going to be a big difference and you saw that right away about that Everyone kind of knew, but I have to say he got those takedowns. So I think he is credited with two, according to Fight Metric. He attempted six. So here's a case where he only got one of three. Takedown percentage is 33% in this fight. 
but that's all he really needed. It sort of a, sort of shows the forty percent is probably accurate, but not reflective of um, some of the broader realities that this fight offered. So in the first round, uh, he was able to get it. I think off us. I think what he was doing a lot of times was he was attacking singles and then using that to either go to the body with a body lock or using that to go to um, switch off from the single to the double. So he would entry off the single and then switch out later. He was able to get it and then pull out the legs of Blahovich turns him away from the fence when he gets it, stayed in guard the whole time, and then tried to use a can opener. I think that was one of those situations where it didn't create the most excitement any of us have ever seen, but I'm okay with that, actually, on both sides, right? So if you're Jan Blahovich, what are you thinking here? You're thinking, I'm going to overhook, collar tie, and then guard. I'm going to hold on to this either to get a stand-up or to bare minimum just to prevent much worst case scenarios because Glover can shred guards. He's not just a black belt in some kind of way where like, oh, isn't that nice that he has it? He really implements it and he has been implementing it for quite some time. Uh, he can pass. He has good knee cut passes. Not a huge mobile passer, but definitely a bit of a smash passer. Um, and he's quite good at that. So I think the calculation that Blahovich made was, I'm just going to hold on either get a stand up or to bare minimum slow the fight down kind of ride this one out. It's a five-round fight. I might have to give away some of this round or maybe even all of it, but I, at least things won't get worse. We'll come out for the second standing on the feet, and now we're back to my ball game, which, again, is a little bit... It shows some of the limits of some of his game underneath, but none of us really ever thought Blahovich was going to be a big threat from, like, guard or something like that. Okay, and you could see Teixeira using a series of things to open up the guard. Sometimes he would use some small ground and pound. He would tripod up, for folks who may not know. It, <clears throat> it's a lot easier to open someone's guard, not in every case, but in most cases when you're standing versus when you're on your knees. It can be done, but it's a little bit harder. So you saw him tripod up and post, looking to get various points of um, opening there. But, you know, I didn't feel like he was hunting that super hardcore. I felt like Glover was like happy to take it if it really showed itself without too much effort. I did not read that as Glover being like, oh, I can't open this guy's guard. Um, I think he was actually pretty, I won't say happy, well, maybe. I think he was satisfied with, with for at least that round, sitting in there because he was using the can opener, which is just bringing the back of someone's head and their chin all the way down, uh, almost like a tie plumb but uh, on the ground and obviously the back and the hips can't go anywhere they're trapped on the mat and so you can get the scenario where the only way to relieve the pressure from a can opener typically um, or at least the standard way to relieve the pressure is to open the guard that's sort of what it's designed for Blahovich didn't really do that and he kind of you know was getting his neck cranked a little bit he'll be feeling that one for sure but I guess the point I'm trying to make here is um, both guys didn't have the most exciting round clear round for Teixeira but I kind of understood where they were. Also, I had mentioned this on Twitter. You have a scenario where uh, if you've ever rolled with someone who has a bald head and then its stubble comes out a little bit and then they're grinding up into you, it'll tear your face to pieces depending on um, the length of it. And in either case, he was using his head uh, to post under the chin to turn his head side to side. He was putting his weight on it as he tripoded up to bring all the weight down in the, in the front there. I mean, he was using it very... Very, very effectively clear 10-9 round for Glover Teixeira. Now, we start the second round. Let me look at some of the numbers here. First round, Blahovich landed 6 of 8 significant strikes. Uh, Teixeira, 10 of 15. Um, but attempting, by the way, 51 of 61. A huge percentage 
um, of the total strikes. Again, 10 to 15 for significant. Second round, things were a little bit different. In fact, Blahovich was winning that one on the feet for as long as it lasted. In fact, in the second round, Blahovich, well, that's not quite true because he got he took a big left hook. I'll talk about that in a second. But up until that, he was winning. Um, landing 22 of 37. Again, fights are judged qualitatively, not quantitatively, but it gives you some sense of how much better it was going. He was jabbing his way. He was throwing some combinations. Glover has a tendency to bring his hands up like this and kind of guard. And when we've talked about this before on Extra Credit and some of my other podcasts. If you see this in MMA, it's not necessarily wrong, but every choice one makes defensively opens up a different set of possibilities or other things that fighters can do around it. And when you do this, you might block the punches, but then hooking punches can land. They can move around you because you can't quite see. You know, So it's a sturdy way to block a punch, but it's bad for some other reasons. Um, and you, know, you saw some of the combos and some of the multi-punch sort of uh, striking attempts that... Blahovich was attempting uh, in the course of that, but but eventually, Teixeira was, you could see him, he was doing a good job of keeping Tish, uh, of Blahovich kind of behind the two black lines, or at least on the back foot more generally. He would try and jab and cross his way inside, and then again, he goes from either a single leg or the body to the double. I think he got, I think he got Blahovich pressed against the fence and then pulled out the right leg, and then from there, immediately passes to mount, and from mount, Blahovich rolls because he's getting banged on, and then the choke went in, and that was all she wrote. Dude, Glover, once it went to mount, the fight was over. But even before that, as I indicated, he landed that left hook. Um, they were competing for left hooks, but it looked like, because they were throwing at the same time, like Dan Hardy, Carlos Condit style. So whenever that happens, it's always a question of like speed and um, and who has the right distance. If you notice, Blahovich's went around the head not quite to the back. In fact, like the forearm hit like back here. So his punch more or less missed. Meanwhile, Teixeira's landed clean as a whistle, rocking him over. And that just helped him put the pressure and got Blahovich in a state where he was now reacting, anticipating, not really moving through this in a way that he should have. He should have been a lot more on his horse than he was um, to combat some of the sort of linear pressure that you saw from Glover Teixeira. And again, Teixeira credited with one of four takedowns, one sub-attempt. He had four, 48 seconds of control in the second round for as long as it lasted. Teixeira is credited, according to Fight Metric, he is credited with four minutes and 29 seconds of control in the first round. So not a 10-8. There's, not, there's no uh, real damage and dominance in that sense, but an unequivocal round for Glover Teixeira. Uh, if you're looking at some of the targeting by location, Jan Blahovich doing a bit of some head hunting there. 71% and 21, 21% respectively head in the body. Glover Teixeira not doing a whole lot differently. No leg kicks, interestingly. Uh, he's always been a bit of a head hunter, which in MMA, it's not as bad as in boxing. If, if, you're, if you're a head hunter in boxing, worse things can happen. Uh, in MMA, it's not as unjustified, uh, certainly depending on the division. Uh, but 73%, according to uh, fight metric, targets for the head, and then 26% of his targets to the body, 0% to the legs. Just 7% for Jan Blahovich. Some people had commented on Twitter, and I think they're right, that Blahovich, for whatever reason, um, looked a little flat today. Uh, maybe the first round took it out of him. He said he left his legendary Polish power back at the hotel room. Not making any excuses. Like, listen, athlete, listen, okay, so there might be a lot of Europeans watching this, but in the American game of baseball, you guys might not know this, but it's, it helps to illustrate the season is insanely long. They play upwards of 160 plus games 
a year. It goes on for weeks and weeks and months and months. And what you end up seeing was even with the very best hitters in the game, let's say the people who win all the slugging awards or whatever, you'll see that they'll have weeks or sometimes months at a time where they just can't hit shit. They're just not on it. Not every time you go out there is going to be your best time. I've made this point before. I interviewed Matt Brown in Atlanta just prior to his fight with Wonderboy Thompson. And I asked him what he made at the time, uh, Thompson's undefeated kickboxing career. And his argument was, I don't know if he's the best kickboxer. I don't know if he fought all the best guys. But here's what I do know. It can't be the case that in all 59 times or whatever the number was for Thompson, it can't be the case that every time he showed up, he felt great or didn't have an injury or didn't have something on his mind or everything just went right for him. Sometimes things just went desperately wrong, but he still found a way to win. Now, in this case, obviously, that wasn't for, um, that wasn't in the plan for Jan Blachowicz, but this is what I'm trying to say. People think when you argue that someone came out flat, you're taking away something from Glover Teixeira. Maybe Glover beats him on his very best day, but it did look like Maybe it was that first round. Maybe it was something else. Blachowicz not quite as acutely aware or just didn't seem to have some of the same urgencies in the second round that I thought he would, even in the even on the stand-up department. Maybe really Glover got in his head with the takedown. Hard to say exactly. But if Glover is the cause of it in the first round, then that's just fair game anyway. Then that's just one guy being better than the other guy anyway. There's nothing to dispute about this win. Glover Teixeira is absolutely your deserving champion, and I just can't say enough good things about him. Dude, when have you ever heard somebody come back and and there's been a report about Glover Teixeira, you know, fucking up gyms uh, because he's some kind of loose cannon, or there's these epic breakups between him and his coaching staff, or... You know, you hear whispers about what a bad guy he is, or and you never hear any of that. He's like he's like Dustin Poirier, dude. You never hear stories like that. You never hear anything about Glover other than what's he up to? Probably in somewhere in Danbury, Connecticut, training, and if not, probably somewhere in Brazil, <laughs> training. That's it, man. That's all you've ever heard about this guy. You've never heard a negative story, and I'm sure no one's perfect. And I'm sure if I learned more and you did, we'd find something to nitpick. But relative to his contemporaries and many of his peers and many of other fighters, you know, he just stands apart from them as a lesson in what is possible when self-belief is really taken as far as you can take it. He's a lesson in what happens where if you just forget the negativity of your own mind, the negativity of the external world, and you just commit yourself to a process, you might just be surprised at what you find on the other end there, both in terms of self-discovery, as well as self-improvement, as well as any number of other important life qualities and Life achievements, in this particular case, the long-eluded for him UFC light heavyweight title. Glover Teixeira gets to go down in history, even if he gets beat in his next fight. And if it's Yuri Prohachka, he just might, because that dude's tough as shit. Uh, who's to say? Glover could win that one too. But you get the idea. Even if it doesn't go for him in that particular direction, he has still reached one of the more important and, frankly, unambiguously, uh, not just cool, but relevant and special milestones um, and achievements that is possible in combat sports, which is a UFC weight class title, undisputed, no interim, no nothing. Um, and whatever you want to say about John Jones being gone and this, that, and the other, I'm not one of these guys who's just ready to believe that like when John Jones comes back, he's just going to pick right up where he left off. I think the game is maybe he could at light heavyweight if he came back, but even then I'm not so sure. Um, and at heavyweight, 
I don't I don't know why people just assume he's going to just take over there. Like, there's a lot of questions that we should have about um, exactly what the upside might be. And I'm not here to take away John's win over Glover in 2014. I, was, I think that's when it was. That was a entirely legitimate win. But divisions move on. People have late chapters in the sport, even when you think they can't. And the ones who are really committed, the ones who not just are gym rats, like I work harder, but like this is how I, I organize my life around these qualities. I organize my life around activities that maximize those qualities and I live my life in pursuit of this until I can do it no more and look at what he did. Dude, do you know when he made his MMA debut? Not UFC, Glover Teixeira, his MMA debut. He made his MMA debut on June 7th, 2002, which he lost to some dude named Eric Schwartz. He lost in the second round at WEC3 in Lemoore, California. Um, and he actually went two and two in his first four fights. He lost to Ed Herman back in March of 2005. After that, he spent a few more days or much more times in Lamore, California, eventually being stuck for a long time fighting in Brazil before he was able to make his UFC debut all the way back in uh, UFC 146 in May of 2012. He got a title shot about two years later and then couldn't get it done against John Jones. He's only ever lost to John, well, since UFC, I should say. John Jones, Phil Davis, Anthony Johnson, uh, Alexander Gustafson, and Corey Anderson. Um, multiple fight of the night, submission of the night, knockout of the night bonuses all the way around. I just can't say enough good things about Glover Teixeira. Fairly one-sided affair, too, is what I would say. There was this question about like what was the upside of Jan Blahovich after he was beating guys. Like, let me pull his record up, too, so I don't misstate anything. After he, because um, remember, he got completely dismissed by Luke Rockhold in the run-up to that fight. And then he got he sent Luke Rockhold packing. But after that, he had the really kind of boring, but I guess important fight against Jacare, which he won. Then he fought Corey Anderson, knocked him out. Then he fought Dominic Reyes, knocked him out. And you thought, aha, this dude has finally put it all together. Then he fights Israel Adesanya. And you thought for sure he had put it all together. Uh, because he really slowed that fight down. He took away a lot of the things that Israel likes to do. And I thought, man, if Israel has a hard time getting through, Glover might as well. But Glover just barreled down and it kind of forced him to react to some of the punches he was throwing in a little bit more of a calculated way, whereas Rockhold, I think, didn't fully respect either the power or, you know, um, just his overall ability to find openings is what I would, is how I would describe that. Now, there is a question to be had here. And I know some folks are going to say this is crazy. It's not. There is an argument, and I am presenting it as no more than that. There is an argument to be made that the best light heavyweight on earth is actually in Bellator. Corey Anderson has wins over Jan Blahovich and Glover Teixeira. And in fact, he beat Glover Teixeira, you know, pretty readily. Granted, that was all the way back in September of 2015. Who the hell knows? What would happen today? But Corey Anderson is absolutely at his best. I would love to see the rematch. We won't because he's in Bellator. But I'm just pointing out Bellator's claim. I mean, they've got who, uh, Diego Santos, by the way. Oh, excuse me. What am I saying? I'm reading the wrong one. Excuse me. Here we go. Corey Anderson beat him in 2018. He beat Jan in 2015 the first time. Corey Anderson beat him in 2018. Even then, I think he's massively improved. And in fact, that's the last loss on Glover Teixeira's record. After that, he beat Carl Roberson, Ayan Kutselava, Nikita Krilov, Anthony Smith, Thiago Santos, and now Jan Blahovich. Uh, no rematches he's run, He's won from those losses, but he hasn't really fought him again, so it's going to be what it's going to be. But I'm just pointing out, Vadim Nemkov 
We'll see what happens when he fights Corey Anderson. Maybe he wins, maybe he doesn't. But if he does, I don't think his claim to being the best is ironclad either. I don't think it's just a foregone conclusion. Vadim Nemkov is the world's best 205er. But I do think it is at least worth considering that the, de- the, the debate in almost any other division isn't a debate. The UFC has the best guys. At 205, it's a little bit harder to make that argument because of what Corey Anderson has done and is doing. You know, just more recently, just dusting Ryan Bader like it was nothing. And then, uh, obviously, with some of his history over the, both of these guys, although, as we know, Jan got his revenge. Um, and then we'll see what Vadim Nemkov can do. I would say, you know, your top five are going to be, obviously, uh, it's going to have uh, Vadim in there. It's going to have Glover in there. And then you could put a couple other names in there if you wanted to. Corey, you could put Jan. You could put maybe Ankalaev, Prohajka. Somewhere in there are all these guys. And, and it's just not totally, it's not just, it's just not ironclad. I think folks thought that Blahovich was this runaway tr- freight train. And he clearly had a great run since losing to Corey Anderson. And then so 20, everything from 2019 on, except for tonight has just been a phenomenal run for Jan Blahovich. Um, and I think it's fair to say, you know, um, let me look at Jan's record here. You know, he defended it against Adesanya who was up a middleweight and then lost it against um, Glover. Does that mean he's a transitional champion? It means he was more transitional champion than, you know, the next guy to be the guy at 205. But okay, he still won the weight class. He still defended it against the guy that, you know, I have been as high on as anyone else, at, you know, maybe in the game ever. Um, so his run was quite decorated too. And I like what he said after the fight, which is, okay, this is disappointing, but my story is not done either. I have another chapter to go. I fully believe him. Maybe tonight was just wasn't his night. Maybe tonight was just Clover's night. Wasn't the best performance from him. Some things to definitely work on for sure. Um, but it just goes to show there's a... I will say this. Between Bellator and UFC at 205, there's a lot of parity. It used to be the case that John Jones, what he ran through everyone. He ran through... one. Um, he ran through... Uh, God, what was the guy he beat at UFC 100? Um, you know, I forget his name. He was supposed to be the next big thing, but he got beat. But then... Um, you know, he just runs through every guy, Ryan Bader and Shogun, and, you know, we, we know the story from there. He was kind of the guy for the time he was there, and, and everyone was just kind of thereafter. You remove him, and you can see there's a lot of parity still with guys still getting better, chapters still being written, careers taking certain turns, good or bad. There's still just a lot more to uncover, and there isn't a single dominant figure in the way that there has been a 205 for a long time. Um, and so you're getting what you get. But, dude, Glover Teixeira, he just, you know, one of the few guys who's just a joy to cover. He doesn't do, you know, big headlines. He doesn't say a whole lot of nonsense. He doesn't, you know, has he, has he ever refused to touch gloves? Has he ever missed weight? You know, I, I don't, I mean, maybe. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think there's ever been a situation. Dude just shows up, makes weight. Wins the overwhelming majority of the time. Tonight captures a weight class title and then just goes on about his day. Um, hard to say too many good things about him. Hard to say way too many good things about him. Hang on. There we go. Uh, okay. We'll come back to that. And certainly if you have a question, I have put up a post on Twitter at, uh, L, Tom- uh, at L. Thomas News, which you can answer and then get to. And then um, I'll look at your questions at the end. Let me type something out here real quick. Let's see here. 
Okay. Uh, let's talk about the next fight. Let's make sure everything looks good. Okay. Let's talk about the next fight down the list if we can. We'll come back to this if you have any questions. Let's talk about the bantamweight title, at least the interim bantamweight title. Peter Jan defeats, or Piotr, whatever, defeats Corey Sandhagen 49-46 across the board, which is exactly how I had it. I had Sandhagen winning the first and then losing probably every round thereafter. Maybe you could make a case he won the second, but certainly didn't win the third, fourth, or fifth. At that point, they were foregone conclusions, although um, Sandhagen had a bad fourth round, then a better fifth round, even if I didn't think um, he won that one. Okay, a couple of things. Peter Yan is just a tremendous talent. A tremendous talent. He, I love how he starts because you can tell he's not a slow starter. But he's not an overly aggressive starter either. This is not a guy who um, rushes into anything. Just really kind of takes his time as he's looking, right? Really just sort of seeing what's out there. And then once he begins to figure out a few openings slowly starts to implement them. And as those begin to have success or failure, depending on what works, he then finds each way, each round to make more difficult for you. Dude, that is the mark of an extremely high-level fighter. One of the biggest differences between a very good fighter and a super elite one, although I'm not saying that Sanhagen is not super elite, although I don't think this was his best performance, which we'll talk about in just a second, because I actually think some of the more interesting story is a little bit there. But in the case of Jan... Dude, it's the adjustments between rounds. I made this point about Mayweather before. Mayweather in his prime, and you can make some cases about, you know, did he take on the fights he was supposed to at the time in which he take, took them? Fine. But once the fight started, dude, if you don't win in the first six rounds, <laughs> it's over for you. Because you sure as fuck ain't winning the last six. Whatever you had in the first six, he will just take away by the seventh round, probably before that. And it's this slow adjustment where you come out with all these ideas, you come out with all of these game plans, and he just removes them one by one. Peter Jan, in his own way, because he is a very different fighter and a very different sport, but in his own way, he does exactly that. I'm going to find just this little thing that you did. I'm going to slowly take it away. I'm going to start pouring on my offense. And by the time I either stop you or that bell rings... It's over for you. It doesn't. There was no coming back from that point. That is the sign of an extremely high-level fighter. Um, I would have to go back and look at the tape to get a better sense of how he did it. Because um, that's obviously a very, very difficult fight to judge in real time. Both guys are, in the case of the early rounds, Jan being very defensive and covering up. Not sort of showing all of his cards. In the case of Sanhagen trying to set the tone with a ton of movement, a ton of volume, blah, blah, blah. But what were the reasons why Sanhagen lost this contest? Well, one, you know, he took his fight on a month's notice after a loss. I thought he beat Dillashaw. Obviously, he didn't beat Sterling, and I don't think he deserved to get the nod here tonight. But I did think he edged Dillashaw. Um, but it was a short notice that probably wasn't the best circumstance to come into this fight, number one. Um, number two, I thought the pop that Peter Jan had was noticeably better than Sanhagen's. Now, that could be for a couple of reasons. I think he was also the stronger athlete of the two whenever they had scrambles. And by the way, Peter Jan might be the most underrated scrambler in the entire UFC. I mean, his skill is extraordinary. 
his ability to stand, his ability to come out on top, his ability to have um, to, to 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 balance. His balance is sick. Uh, he is a very underrated scrambler. But you noticed he was a little bit stronger than Sanhagen. He was winning positions where they were both kind of there more or less the same time. It was one of those who wants it more. And you could kind of see him just kind of muscle into it that last bit that Sanhagen couldn't quite keep up with. He would find himself underneath a lot as a consequence. Um, there weren't a whole lot of scrambles, but when they did, you, there was a sort of a common denominator there. Um, so I think there was a little bit more pop, uh, a little bit of a stronger athlete in the case of Jan, I think is one. I think, too, he didn't figure out the totality of Sandhagen's game. I don't think he was trying to. I think he was trying to find a handful of different scenarios that Sandhagen would go to that he could take advantage of. As DC indicated, let me pull up my notes. I took notes on that fight, actually, not the other ones. But um, I'll pull it up here in just a second. Here we go. As, um, as DC indicated... Whenever there was that switch to southpaw, he would get lit up for the switch with a body kick. That's a common thing. You saw Volkanovski do something similar uh, as we went over in my uh, video on my personal YouTube channel, breaking down the Volkanovski and Ortega fight. You saw that a lot from there. It's a common tactic. That's why that was one that was going to, and it really pinked up his ribs and the whole nine yards. So, um, so there was this, there was this physicality there. There was this pop that was there. The left hand couldn't miss. And the, the big issue was, for me, was Sanhagen had two problems beyond some of these close contact scenarios. One was that he just couldn't get Jan off of him. He couldn't get Jan to respect um, what he was throwing at him. Jan had, Jan had to respect enough to cover and roll, right? He, had, he, had to res he couldn't just let, it get, let him get... He couldn't let himself get hit. But he also couldn't just... Um, he wasn't it didn't look to me like he was feeling it it looked to me like as long as he kind of covered and rolled with it a little bit it took the sting off of just about everything Cordy was throwing so there was nothing to make him there were those takedown attempts in the first round and I think he had a couple more later I'll pull up the, the numbers on this um, here excuse me as I pull up my stats there were those takedowns in the first round attempts to kind of get you know to mix things up with Jan obviously uh, Sanhagen probably not really looking for the takedown per se although he'll take it if he gets it but using it a lot like Robert Whitaker where it's just designed to turn an opponent it's just designed to set up a, a strike it's designed to set up some kind of strike on an exit from a clinch break it's designed to do things other than just the takedown but I guess what I'm trying to say is there the there it wasn't merely that there was greater pop with Jan with uh, Peter Jan it was that the lack of pop from Sanhagen forced him to be really on his bike. Now, he was going to be on his bike anyway, but Jan could get closer and closer and closer. And the body shots that he was digging uh, early were pretty impactful from Sanhagen, but he kind of got away from them. He didn't throw nearly as many of those later. He was a bit of a headhunter, has always been a bit of a headhunter. And so, so Jan was able to comfortably kind of pressure this guy. You know, we had to be minding his P's and Q's, but nothing was ever really making him second guess or really hurting him or really making him go to a different option. He just had to be patient, ply his trade, but he could stay in Sandhagen's face, okay? And his defense is exceptional. Uh, another thing that's just great about Peter Jan, you know, not only does he have phenomenal scrambling, dude, his, his defense is on point. 
Okay, that's the second part. So it was, if you're going to be the guy that has to move, that's fine. But you do have to have those moments where when you stick your opponent, you really stick it to them. I didn't really see that this time. So that was a bit of a problem. And I think the other problem with what Sandhagen was kind of up against is the defense. He does on offense all of this switching and movement and side-to-side stuff, and it's valuable and it has worked for him. And at this point, he's pot committed. He definitely should not get away from that. At the same time, what you end up seeing is he stays in the pocket or in range way too long, and so he gets overcommitted. A lot of the stuff he likes to throw is a lot of like hooking and straight combos off at an angle, but kind of close contact. And so what did you see Peter Yan doing? He might double the jab, he might double and then triple, but then he would find usually a left hand over the top as Sanhagen was so close he couldn't get away. And Sanhagen doesn't typically roll underneath hooks. He leans to get out of the way. Well, he was leaning and then just getting lit up every single time. So Jan just knew he had to find a way to hold on, cover distance, and then he could tear this guy up uh, with his punches. And that is exactly what he did. That was especially evident from the left side in that fourth round. Sandhagen just has this sort of way of pulling back where he just keeps getting clipped. Um, And he got dropped, obviously, I think it was in the third round. Let's pull up the numbers here if I can. Man, Sandhagen's volume is insane. 449 total strikes attempted. One of six takedowns. That was a pretty good takedown he got. I think it was like the fourth or fifth round. Yeah, fourth round. He got one of three in that round, the only one of the fight. Um, Sandhagen landed 169 of 445. Much more economical by Peter Yan. Just 270 attempted significant strikes. 280 total. It was only a 10-strike difference. And then landing 149. So technically, Sandhagen landed more, but qualitatively, I mean, you could hear and kind of see that Jan was doing um, the more damaging work. I, I, don't, I don't know how anyone could deny that. Let's look at the best round for him. Peter Jan, just 19 strikes landed in the first, 38 in the second, 36 in the third, 36 in the fourth, 20 in the fifth. I want to point out something about Sandhagen's hitability. If you look at his overall numbers, this is what I'm talking about. This is this is what makes Sandhagen great, and I think this is one of the things that's been holding him back a little bit. Strikes landed per minute, 6.32, extremely high. Extremely high. A lot of that is just touch, touch. You know, not. It's not designed to hurt you. They were talking about this in the broadcast. It's not designed to hurt you. It could be designed to cheat the angle, close the distance, blind you, whatever, and then something with impact comes behind it. Still, six point three two, extremely high number. Here's your problem. While he does have a positive differential, strikes absorbed per minute is four point oh five. That is high. That is extremely high. I'm trying to find anyone in the top five. Let's look at the top five here. So Glover Teixeira strikes absorbed per minute, 3.84. Jan Blahovic, 2.79. Let's try Peter Jan. What's his strikes absorbed per minute? 3.55. Still a little on the high end, um, but not too bad. How about Islam Makachev? 0.77. We'll talk about him in a second. They don't lay a glove on that guy. Right? Let's go to Dan Hooker. Strikes absorbed per minute. 4.66. Okay? A little bit higher than Corey's. Uh, but he only lands 4.95. And would you say Dan Hooker has taken some beatings in his career? Uh, I think you would. I think that, you know, you wouldn't say he has bad defense, but that 
Um, it has his defense has not his chin has saved him. His defense has not. How about Alexander Volkov? Excuse me, let me pull this up. Real quick. I'm going to go through this real quickly. Volkov strikes absorb per minute two point eight eight. Marcin Tybora, that fight was not good. Three point three one. How about Kamzat Chimaev? We'll talk about him later. Point one strikes absorb per minute. Point one. Okay, uh, Li Jiang Lang, three point six five. Magomed Ankalaev, which we'll talk about in a second, 1.78. Volkan Uzdemir, 4.24. So those two fighters who had more in Hooker and in Uzdemir, they all lost. In fact, every fighter on the main card who had a strikes absorb per minute higher than four, Sanhagen, uh, Uzdemir, and uh, who's the other one here? Somebody else here. Oh, Hooker. Hooker. They all lost. Now, not necessarily, not necessarily because of that reason. The case of Hooker was totally different. But you get my point. Dude, that's a liability. That's a liability. It's going to be hard not so much to win in the UFC. You can still win. But it's going to be hard to, A, win at this level, especially against a guy like Jan. And it's going to be hard to credibly say you're maximizing your potential if you're accepting that kind of punishment. I think what... What Sanhagen might say is a very smart guy because he is. He might say, well, one, it probably is true that I shouldn't take as many punches as I do, but, you know, a lot of those don't land or they don't hurt me, they don't phase me, blah, 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 blah. Fair enough, but he did get dropped. Maybe he got off balance, but he did get dropped with that spinning back fist in the third or whatever it was. I think it was the third. I have to look at the numbers here again. Uh, let's pull this up for the Peter Yan fight. When do they credit the knockdown? Yeah, the third round. Um, and in any case... It, 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 it certainly you can't say that it didn't play a factor in this fight, the, the defense. There's a question of like how much your offense caters to certain scenarios that doesn't allow your defense to be what it needs to be. Whether that's adding certain things about rolling under hooks or you know getting in and getting out or hitting at different kinds of angles or tightening some things up. I, I leave that to his very capable coaches who know what they are doing, uh, certainly much more than you or I. But the numbers speak for themselves. You cannot let people put gloves on you like that. In the case of Jan, accepting some of those that those numbers from Sanhagen, maybe you could get away with it if A, a lot of it is blocked, or B, it just doesn't really, it doesn't meaningfully land, right? I mean, he was getting physically, uh, you could see he was turning pink. You could see all kinds of sort of telltale signs. You could hear them. You know, if you're getting hit like that, your volume, it needs to have a corresponding kind of effect. Maybe not all the time because you're throwing more volume, but if your opponent is visibly marking you up, dropping you, you need to return the favor. And the offense that Sanhagen had was good, but it couldn't get Jan off of him. He had a hard time breaking through some of those defensive shells and positions that Jan was applying. And then on top of that, he was just taking too much, too much if, you're, if the guy you're fighting has superior firepower and you're taking four strikes a minute, it's going to be hard to win a title. It's just going to be hard to win a title. I still think, I mean, these guys are both in their fucking 20s. You know, I think that Peter Yan is going to beat Aljamain Sterling. Aljamain Sterling had a post being like, you know, I'll see you when we're ready and blah, blah, blah. His comments were, the comments uh, beneath it were a fucking graveyard, uh, which you can imagine. But, um, I don't know who beats Peter Yan. Maybe Henry Cejudo could come and give him a run for his money. I don't think that's the guy either. I think that's the best bantamweight on earth by probably by a considerable margin.
But here's what I think about Corey Sandhagen. I've been extremely high on him. I think that there are probably some physicality issues that some strength and conditioning could could um, address over time, not right away. I don't think he should rush into any more bouts. I think he needs more experience. And, uh, I mean, I'm not saying this was the wrong call. Like, if they call you with a title fight against Peter Yan, I mean, this was, this, as everyone was calling it, this was the most official. Um, our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Interim title fight, maybe in UFC history, right? But I think there's some strength and conditioning issues that have to get not conditioning, but some strength issues that have to get addressed. I do think there are some calls they he and his team have to make about how much volume do we really need if it can't sit opponents back or down? How do we really cross that threshold but not lose the kind of style that he's developed about all the switching and all the input? That he, I mean, what, what is Sanhagen's sort of style? It's giving you so much input to think about, you don't really know what's coming. But for a clever guy like Jan who can sit back and wait and then figure it out, roll with punches a little bit, um, and then can see you positionally overcommitted, and then he takes advantage of that. His body kick on the switch was phenomenal. He found just a few things to go to, and he went back to them over and over and over again, and that was how he won. He didn't win with a ton of tricks. He won with a lot of defensive acumen, a lot of understanding of real estate, a lot of great timing, a lot of amazing reads, and then picked just a few spots and took it away from him. Peter Jan is going to be a very hard guy to beat. And I don't think there's anyone in that bantamweight division currently competing that I can see that's going to have much of a chance against him. Um, I think Sanhagen has the real possibility of getting a weight class title. But for him, it's time to go back to the lab, really work on uh, his game, really work on his defense, really work on his... Uh, but I will say this, I thought his wrestling offensive looked improved tonight because that one takedown. I mean, yeah, he missed the other ones, but I don't think he was really trying all that hard. And then I will say this, I thought his defensive wrestling was very, very improved in this fight. So you can see it's there. He just needs a little bit more time. More time in the lab to perfect what is clearly going to be a title threat in this division for some time to come. But not tonight. Tonight was the night of Peter Yan, and he is an exceptional, exceptional fighter. And a very worthy, in this particular case, interim, but champion just the same. Uh, here, as a reminder... If you haven't already, please subscribe to our Morning Combat for when we do our regular shows. And for all the interviews and everything else, please subscribe. Okay, so I'm going to get to your questions here in just a second. But before I do, let's talk about the return of Hamza Chemaev. I mean, bro, 
What do you want to say about this guy? He is, uh, he's something else. Um, okay, let's pull these numbers up. Oh, you know what? I didn't get to Islam and Dan. I'll get to them in just a second. Let me just go here because I know you guys are probably itching to talk about them. So what was my argument before? I was ready to believe he could be as much as the hype said he was, but we just didn't have enough evidence, right? It's not to say it's not true. We just can't make a call. We just need a little bit more evidence. And I made a point that like Shavkat Rachmanov didn't have nearly the hype, but had been way more battle-tested against the uh, better opposition to make a broader call about his upside. And I still think, by the way, that guy might win a title. We'll have to see. But as it stands right now, what was interesting about this fight heading into it was that you're like, aha, right. Um, the leech, Li Jiang Lang, was clearly the best fighter he had fought to this point. Uh, Battle-tested himself, pretty well-rounded, aggressive, um, heavy puncher at times, and uh, seemed just quite game for the, for the moment. And you were like, okay, I mean, let's look at his career here for a second. Who has Lee beaten? Santiago Ponzinibbio, Eliza Zaleski Dos Santos, who had his own issues tonight. I mean, not well, the referee, I guess. Um, and then some bunch of names that some folks may not remember. Frank Camacho, who I uh, know and used to train with years and years ago. Zach Otto, Bobby Nash, blah, blah, blah. David Zawada. So the Ponzinibbio win was his best one, but he got it in the first round. He looked good doing it. And, you know, he had lost to Neil Magny via decision in a five-round, or sorry, in a three-round fight. You know, understandable. So we didn't think he was the best fighter on earth, but we thought, okay, now this is a credible challenge who has shown dramatic improvement and really deserves to be taken quite seriously. So what does Chemayev do? Chemayev walks across the octagon, shoots under a punch with like, and you know, his level change, like the, the how low he was able to get and then how deep he was able to hit the penetration step. Picks up the leech, walks over to where Dana White, the UFC president's position on the cage, and then begins to shout at him about God knows what that maniac was shouting about. What makes Hamzat's game good? I don't know how it was received on Twitter. I'm sure a bunch of idiots said a bunch of stupid things we don't have to listen to. But one of the things that kind of occurred to me was Hamzat's top game looks a little bit like a mix between Habib and Colby. What do I mean by that? Colby has very little ground and pound. He doesn't do a lot of it. All He does have a high volume on the feet, not on the ground. On the ground, he likes to move through half positions, fake chokes that you have to respect but are not really going to be applied. Now, this was a real choke here, but you know what I mean? Like That's what he does. He kind of just smothers you the whole way. Kamzat has some of the smothering style of Colby, but he's got the urgency and the physicality and then the ground and pound and then the choke threats of Habib. That's what I mean. It's got a little bit of both mixed in. Obviously, Habib is a dominant position grappler as well, but not necessarily in the same way as Colby. What was Chemayev good at? Dude, Chemayev is so good at hitting a leg ride. So he's wrapped one leg, right? So he's halfway on the back on the leg. He'll extend the leg and wrap like a lockdown to keep them from being able to post on the leg. And he's very good at getting himself either behind the opponent or halfway behind the opponent to prevent the opponent from using the fence. You guys ever notice that? Hamzat is quite good at getting right here so I can't wiggle free and then stand up. He takes that away from his opposition by getting to those half positions. That's actually why the choke didn't work at first. Because what you notice was if you have, again, it doesn't have to be this way. 
But in an ideal world, you would want to have your chest and their back to have complete almost shoulder symmetry. The more you have that, the easier the choke is going to be. Okay? He didn't quite have that. You would notice that rather than being this scenario, you would kind of see the leech a little bit off to the side. So the choke was probably tough, probably hurt, but not really enough to put him out. So that was when you saw Chemayev eventually go left arm around behind the leech onto the mat, a la kind of what Nate Diaz did to McGregor in their first fight, and then switched it through to the other side. And then I don't think he clipped it with his hand. I think it was just up here. And the leech was hand fighting the whole time. And then switched it to the other side. And once he did and then pulled him across, he kind of pulled him into a more symmetrical position between chest and back. And that was how he was able to close the show. Plus, he probably has a fucking ridiculous squeeze um, on top of that. Okay, so how do we rank Hamzat Chemayev? Here's what I would say. If you want to believe in the upside, it's not like one victory at this point proves everything. But I think you are much more entitled to believe in the upside now. That was real evidence. Dude, in four UFC fights, he has outstruck in total strikes his opponents 254 to 2. He has outstruck them something like 100 and something significant strikes to one. He has absorbed one significant strike in four UFC fights across, in this particular case, two weight class, uh, two, weight, two weight divisions. Richard Mann is a writer for, and a, um, and a, a not more than just a writer, he works for Fightmetric, he's a stats guy for them. And he wrote, I think quite correctly, that record is going to stand a long time. Think about who you have to be for your first four fights, and they can't land but one fucking glove on you under the significant strike definition. One. Four trips to the octagon. I don't know if you'll ever see that again. I've seen some bad motherfuckers come through. I don't think I've ever seen that. I, I saw John Jones. I remember when John Jones made his debut against Andre Guzmao. You guys may not remember this. Guzmao was coming out of the IFL. He was widely regarded as like the guy who was going to win. He was really, he was very respected. John beat his ass. I remember when Conor McGregor was coming around and he fought Marcus Brimage. Dude, he looked phenomenal. He didn't look like that. And again, who's to know what kind of career that Kamzat will have? Because um, while he had the terrible bouts with COVID, it didn't seem to slow him down this time. But life can be unpredictable is merely all I am saying. We never know. And it should be noted, what does it look like when this guy gets pressed into, you know, there's going to be a, as, as legitimate a challenge as the leech was. I think we can all agree the wrestling at the top of the division is several orders of magnitude more difficult. But, but... Two things I want to say about Shemaev. Number one, folks, I have been around the fight game for about almost not quite two decades at this point in terms of covering it. I'm old and I'm fucking lame. But here's one thing I know. One of the most exciting times in a fighter's career, whether it's Habib, whether it's Connor, whether it's John Jones, whether it's you pick your favorite, whoever that might be, Demetrius, blah, 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 whatever. Although his rise was different. But I mean the ones who immediately capture your attention at the UFC level, right? Those guys. Their rise through the contendership, their rise is perhaps the most fun time in their career. Hold on just one second. Maybe. 
So, you should get ready to have some fun. Because I don't know exactly who he's going to beat, but he's going to beat some good fighters. That seems inevitable. Already has. Uh, and that push through the contender queue when you're like, could he do it against this guy? Could he do it against that guy? Could he do it? It's one of the most exciting times in a fighter's career. Enjoy it. Because we're about to get it, and I can't wait. Is the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is, do we know everything about Shemaev? No. We need to see what it's like if someone takes him down. We need to see what it's like if he takes a punch. We need to see what happens if he gets tired or blah, blah, blah. There's still a lot of questions that have to get answered in the course of time. But he represents the future of this division. He represents the future of mixed martial arts. Well, the present in many cases, too. Um, he's coming. He is on his way, and he is about to tear through some folks, I really believe. And I think if you were a little bit on the fence, which I kind of was, I didn't think, again, it wasn't a choice of is he bad or is he good. It's He's obviously good, but how good? Yeah, he might be quite special, once rare kind of thing good. He is a dominant force. Now, I do wonder what's going to happen when some guy stuffs his takedowns and all the other things, you know, or whatever. I mean, there's, there's just so many unknowns as he tries to climb the ranks. Also, I think it was Aaron Bronstetter who made this point on Twitter. Maybe it was somebody else. There's a question of... Um, who's going to want to take a fight with him? You know, who's going to sign up to take fights with this guy? I, I You know, I don't know. I don't know who's going to... I, who the hell are they going to convince to do that? <laughs> you know, and people are like, oh, they'll offer him to Nate Diaz. I mean, maybe Nate takes that fight. I don't think so. Um, but, you know, I mean, dude, strikes landed per minute. So this is what he's dishing out. This fucking guy, Hamza Chimaev, is at 9.03. That is almost as high as you'll ever see. And then strikes absorbed. Point one. I don't think I've ever seen a differential that wide. Strikes landed per minute minus strikes absorbed. I don't think I've ever seen where the difference is basically nine. The integer. <laughs> He's from another dimension. He's from another dimension. If he can stay focused, he was born in 1994. If he can stay focused, he's young, he's talented, he's hungry. Um, I think you are entitled to now daydream about what is possible. And I think we should all get ready because I think what he's about to unleash is going to be so dynamic, so eye-popping, and so fun. Where it ends up, maybe a title, maybe not, hard to say. Pro probably at some point, right? Um, he's that good. But that run, that run to the top of the division, that before you actually get the belt, it's one of the most exciting times in a fighter's career, and you should absolutely enjoy it. All right, last but certainly not least, obviously the Magomed Ankalaya fight against Volkan Uzdemir was a big deal. I'm probably going to save that for extra credit, which if you guys don't know is a secondary podcast we do here at Morning Combat um, that I get to all the fights we didn't get to on Big MK. He looked amazing. He's one of the next guys at 205. Amazing is a strong word. He looked good. He's one of the next guys at 205 that's probably going to contend, maybe hold a weight class title. The Russians are here. You know, what are you going to do about it? Um, Volkov and Tybora, we can skip. Let's talk very quickly, if we can, about the Makachev and Hooker fight. Hooker taking this one on semi pretty late notice as well. And you knew he was a threat in the stand-up department. He's got great linear attacks up the middle. Um, he, you know, he's beaten several guys with his knees. He is a dynamic force that way. Uh, but... Makachev, I don't know how this guy's not going to contend for a title uh, right away. I mean, maybe they'll give it to the winner of Chandler and Gaethje, maybe. But to me, 
Makachev is more deserving. Hooker is a legitimate opponent, and I hate to say this, but it's the reality. This did not look very hard for Makachev. I don't say that with like pleasure. I, I like Dan Hooker a lot, but you just got to call it what it is, man. Did that look like that was super tough to you for Makachev? That didn't look like it was super tough to me. So how did he do it? He catches the kick. He goes to the double. I think he was level changing at the same time, but he caught it. He gets to half butterfly. Uh, and then he was trying to lock up the head and the arm. If this is the head of uh, Hooker, he moves the arm over it like this and then puts his head behind him as he attacks the arm that's in front of him here. He locks up the Kimura grip like this and then gets himself out of half butterfly and goes cross body. From there, he takes his right leg. I believe it was his right leg, if I got that right, then steps over the head. Why is stepping over the head so important? A lot of reasons. Two. One is that when you step over their head, it stops how far they can sit up. They can't sit up their way out of it anymore. So that's the first problem. The second part is that when you step over the head like that, you can now plant and then drive into the submission, which if Hooker didn't tap there, that shit was getting torn to pieces. I mean, he had him come. That is, that's that's about as close as you're going to get to checkmate in, um, in MMA grappling. That's about it right there. It doesn't get, I don't, he, his, his shoulder was going to get trashed. His elbow was going to get, I mean, it was all going to be bad. Um, and I don't even know if he tapped. Maybe it was like a technical submission, but it, what are you going to say? It was over. Um, folks asked, how would he do against Poirier or Oliveira? Well, against Poirier, I think he would have some advantages on the ground, obviously on the feet. First of all, Poirier is no slouch on the ground, but um, I don't know if he's on par with Makachev, is what I would say. On the feet, though, obviously, he could he could tear him up. But then, Oliveira's the interesting one, right? Because Oliveira's stand-up dramatically improved. And on the ground, dude, he is a tough customer. That Makachev, if Makachev ends up fighting Oliveira, that could get very interesting, very fun. I don't know how, exactly how Makachev does there. Um, against guys that are terribly overmatched, yeah, he looks awesome. Would would Oliveira be terribly overmatched? I have a hard time believing that. Uh, so that would be interesting. That is, the, I mean, of the two, I actually think that's the much more interesting fight than Makachev versus Poirier, but Poirier may end up winning, so we'll have to see how that goes. But that guy should be your next title contender. I, I respect Michael Chandler a lot. He had his chance. I respect Justin Gaethje a lot. He had his chance. Um, but the reality is what the reality is. I think that guy has done more than anyone in that division to deserve the opportunity and... Uh, Beating Dan Hooker, he didn't just beat Dan Hooker. He just easily beat Dan Hooker. And again, it pains me to say that because I think so highly of him. But 225 at the first round is the number. I mean, it did not look especially difficult for him. He barely broke a sweat. Um, so Islam Makachev deserves that respect. And I think, uh, you know, Dan Hooker will be back. It wasn't like he took a ton of punishment or anything. I'm sure his arm is okay. It'll be okay. You know, he'll be back in there in no time at all, and he'll get some good wins. Dude, Dan Hooker's a good fighter. He's going to beat good fighters. Uh, but tonight belonged to Islam Makachev. I mean, look at the names who won, man. Uh, the Brazilian in the main event, a Russian in the co-main, a Russian Makachev, Volkov in the heavyweight fight, Shemaev, who's from uh, Chechnya, but, you know, part of the same part of the world anyway, uh, and then Ankalaev. It was just a Russian and Brazilian bonanza, basically. Um on that main card. All right, so if you've got a question, I'm going to get to it now. Let me pull it up. Ba -ba 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 -ba. 74 of them. Let's see. I'm not going to get to all of them. Let's try. 
Where does this comeback from Glover rank all time? How many fighters lost their first shot then went almost 10 years later? It wasn't 10. I think it was 2014 where he fought. Uh, so seven. But seven years between UFC title shots and then claiming it the second time. I don't know if there's any precedent for that. You can argue Nemkov, Yuri, or Jiri, whatever his name is, Ankalaev are the best light heavyweights, but I think UFC has a better division. That could be true. That could be true. Does this title fight show how good Jones was holding onto the belt for a long time? Yes. Yes. In his day, yes. However, I want to stress, I don't know if we're in that day anymore. He might still beat Glover, but that he is the, the same force he was as he was back then? Same force now as he was back then? I am very skeptical of that claim. Uh, considering Hamzat takes no damage and likes quick turnarounds, if he gets a top five win soon, he could jump Leon for a title shot. He might. I don't think that's all that crazy. He might. All right, this person has asked like 10 questions. Let me get to somebody else. <laughs> My only question was legendary Polish power versus old man strength. That was thoroughly answered. Yeah, I suppose it was. How about a UFC Russia versus a USA mega card like Rocky IV? You could do it. The Russians are here, folks. Get used to it. Should UFC consider having Dean Thomas shift to the commentator's table for more detailed commentary over the jerky style of Felder and somewhat DC? I, I don't mind Felder and DC in the way that you do. I do think Dean Thomas is quite good in that role and maybe could get a spot. I, I would need to see how he does because sometimes he repeats himself. Like Dean's knowledge and the nuggets he drops are like primo. Um, still working out some of the broadcast bugs, if you ask me. But I love Dean. I'm glad he's there. He's earned that spot. And he's good at it. What I learned from 267, this person writes, is ground game outweighs stand-up big time. Nope. Who's next to face on Kalayev? Uh, Reyes, maybe? Well, whoever is close in the numbers, if they can get someone to say yes to him. How do you feel about fighters calling their training partners fights? Felder seemed neutral, but it's, I don't know what that means. Oh, uh, I don't like it, but I'm not... UFC doesn't seem to really mind that kind of thing. They don't seem to think that's a big deal. It kind of is what it is. Who poses the toughest test for Peter Yan going forward? I actually think it's Corey Sandhagen, just not right now, in a couple of years. Right now? We'll see how TJ does, I guess. What would you say is the best counter to the Smesh style of MMA? Is it extremely high-level BJJ? Gilbert Burns level? If someone is not that high level, are there particular submissions? I think a good jab, believe it or not, I and mean, phenomenal footwork, clinch breaking could be great. But then also, uh, yes, you have to make them pay as soon as you get down there. So someone like Oliveira, like I, again, here's my thing: like I don't know how the Oliveira Makachev fight goes, but that would tell us a lot. Do you think Sandhagen will need to sit down on his punches more going forward? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Did Jan over-the-top friendliness with Glover in the build-up cost him the fight? I don't think so. These guys are too long. Maybe. Could be. These guys get in their head a little bit, but I tend to think it was more just, um, just not his night. Is Hamzat the most impressive prospect ever? He's on the short list for the first four fights, for sure. That's the best first four-fight run I've ever seen in the UFC. Right? Who has a better first four fights? How do you think Jan's striking style compares to that of Holloway and Volkanovsky? Very different from both of them. Jesus. 
Um, Holloway is much more volume jab heavy, not nearly as kick heavy. Volkanovski, much more faint movement based. Um, Jan can be something of a counter striker more often. They're very different. When Adesanya, would Adesanya beat anyone in the top five of the light heavyweight division? Sure. Remember the visa issues Glover had from 2008 to 12? Yes, people were concerned he might be past his peak when he made his debut at 34. Yep, now he's champ. Amazing, great point. Do you reckon Hooker will ask for a fight on the December card if his arm wasn't injured? CKB teammate Brad Riddell is on that card, so a bunch of CKB coaches would probably be there. If I was him, I would take some time. I don't think that's what he wants, but I think that's what's in order. Top three welterweights, excluding Usman, who does Hamzat Chemayev have the best chance against? Covington, Burns, or Leon Edwards? I think Chemayev would chew up Leon Edwards. Um, Covington and Burns, harder to say. Harder to say. Love to see all of them, right? That's the whole point. That's when you know a guy is starting to make it. It's like, oh, I'd love to see all those, you know. Did the fight between Glover and Jan play out the way you expected? No, it definitely... Well, I knew if he got to the ground, it'd be better, but the ease with which he got to the ground kind of surprised me. Do you think Henry Cejudo has a better chance of beating Peter Jan than Sterling? Yes, I do. Does Nate Diaz seem like a good fight for Chimaev, given his impeccable chin and diverse skills on the ground? No, I think Chimaev would do terrible things to Nate Diaz. If I was Nate Diaz's team, I would stay the fuck away from that fight. How scared should the rest of the UFC be of the Smash Factory after watching this card? Bro, if you didn't know that the Brazilians, uh, if you didn't know that the Russians were here, this was a wake-up call. Can you explain the possible thought process for Jan diving for that Kimura that led to the finish? Seemed like a really bad decision making by Jan giving up position. I'd have to go back and look. I didn't I didn't know. Was Jan a little shy in his approach? Maybe a little. Maybe a little. Do you think Jan's son is cuter than Hasbulla? I don't understand what's so funny about Hasbulla. He's some small dude who's not a baby and then like says outrageous shit and people think it's hilarious to me it's like i know that's not what he is but it's like you're not supposed to say this word anymore but it's sort of like immature and everyone's like oh luke you're old fuck you yes fuck me i don't i mean fine i don't care but it's just sort of like immature like oh let's laugh at uh little people let's laugh at midgets it's like that's not what he is i think he's some other condition but count me in as being like i don't get what what's so fucking awesome but okay everyone loves him you got to talk about the Justin Gaethje tweet to DC MMA. Let me see what he said. Suck it harder. <laughs> oh, I guess when DC must have asked Makachev about, you know, well, why should you leapfrog those guys? Da, 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 da. Yeah. Okay. So that's where you get into problems. Like Felder maybe should have interviewed him. You see what I mean? Dan Hooker at 145 seems like his best chance. No, dude, he looked like shit at 145. Too much of a cut. Should DC remove himself from the commentating for his teammates' fights? Maybe post-fight if they win. Uh, can anyone stop Makachev? Happy for Glover, but Prohachka is going to, going to go to jail for what he does to him. I would probably favor Prohachka, but tonight, I don't even want to say something like that because tonight belongs to a guy by the name of Glover Teixeira. Tonight is a night for... Dude, I'm 42 and thought I was being brave because I walked... Not brave, but you know, I'll walk home 
from my barber who was all the way across town. It took me like an hour to walk home. I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'll do that because I'm 42 and I need to. This motherfucker fought Jan Blahovich in a cage at 42 and we're the same age. God bless him, dude. God bless Glover Teixeira. What a fucking hero this guy is. Um, okay, so if you haven't already, one more time. One more time. Like the video. Hit subscribe. Join the Morning Combat Movement on Monday. It will be me, Brian Campbell, and you to get to all of this and more. This is just the immediate reaction. We thank you so much for joining us here today. You are the best. We love you. I hope you enjoyed the fights. People are going to say, you're a boomer. Yes, I'm a boomer. I don't give a shit. But I love you guys. I appreciate you watching. What a great card. Maybe one of the best free cards in UFC history. It was that good. And a wake-up call about what the future of MMA is going to look like. And it is looking decidedly Russian and decidedly Smash Factory. And you know what? We're the richer for it. So congrats to all the winners tonight and to the losers. You will be back. Thank you, guys. See you Monday. Enjoy the fights. Get some sleep.